Steve Kaufman here. Today I'm going to talk about Russian, my experience with Russian, about how I learned the language, some comments about the language, and I'm going to begin by explaining a bit about Russia and Russian culture as I perceive it. I had mentioned in my video about uh, learning French that the French like to be very logical, at least that's what they teach at school, and they like to be very precise in how they you know, explain themselves and so forth. The Japanese is not at all that way, and uh, also there's a lot of understatement in Japanese. Uh, they don't say no, they say, you know, we're going to certainly uh, consider your uh, suggestion, which means no. Uh, the Russians are not like that. The Russians say no. If it's no, they say no. Uh, they also uh, very much like, uh, I mean, all people generalize, but in Russia, there's no political correctness. There is just generalizations. They say anything, as they say in Russian. They'll say anything based on knowing the subject, not knowing the subject, getting the facts wrong. I hear this all the time on Echo Moskvi, the most amazing statements, with, but with tremendous drama and conviction. And so I'm going to do the same. I'm going to make very generalized statements about Russia and Russians without worrying too much about my facts. So, uh, how did I get started? Well, I was uh, about 60 and uh, I had really two reasons for getting into Russian. One was that I had read, uh, you know, books by Dostoevsky and Tolstoy when I was 17, 18, and I thought it would be really cool to be able to read those books in the original. And the second thing was that, uh, you know, my approach to language learning is to de-emphasize grammar, not to ignore grammar, but to not put it up front and to focus on uh, exposing myself to the language through lots of listening and reading and, and emphasizing really, you know, noticing patterns rather than complicated grammar rules, uh, explanations and so forth. And I was sort of challenged and said, well, you can't do that with Russian because the, the, uh, the grammar is too complicated. Okay, the grammar is very complicated. Russian is a difficult language. Uh, and uh, to some extent, some people say no language is more difficult, uh, blah, blah, blah. In fact, some languages are more difficult than others. It all depends on the language that you're starting from, of course. But for people without any background in Slavic languages, Russian is difficult. And I'm going to explain why. But before that, I'll talk a little bit about Russia. Russia is is a, a phenomenal country. I mean, the scale, the size of Russia is mind-boggling. And uh, if we go back in history, we'll see that, uh, you know, whatever it was, the Duchess, Duchess, Dukedom or whatever it was, Muscovy, was this little uh, area up in northern Russia uh, where people of, I guess, a mixture of Slavic and uh, you know, Finnish type people and Baltic type people and so forth. They were up there doing their thing. Uh, I can't remember whether they were actually conquered by the, um, by the Mongol hordes who dominated, you know, the Mongol Tartar hordes that dominated Russia for 300 years. I think they were, I can't remember, but whatever it was, the prince up there eventually defeated them. And so, so really the growth of Russia, even though there were, people in, in the sort of area of what's now the Ukraine that were also Russians and Kiev is called the mother of all Russian cities and so forth, but they were very much under the rule of the Mongols for 300 years. 
and uh, so this this Muscovy was up there and you know interacting with Baltic countries and Germans and Swedes and stuff like that and not very different perhaps other than that they spoke a different language but culturally very much in that sphere and from that it expanded to the Pacific uh, you know from the moment they defeated the Mongols uh, within a few hundred years they had expanded south uh, right down to the Caspian Sea that expanded you know I think they reached the Pacific in the late 1600s and they only overthrew the Mongol yoke as it's called in the late or in the mid 1500s again my history is you read it you forget it but roughly so it, it has become this this tremendous continental country and so you, you're very much aware of this and of course subsequent to that under Catherine the Great and other czars they consolidated their hold on these central asian areas and caucasus you know and they there was a significant expansion in the 19th century uh, south and east uh, i mean tsar's russia was very much an imperialist power uh, an imperialist power on somewhat weak legs because they expanded too quickly and they were defeated by the japanese in 1905 and from that the whole uh, you know, largely because of the First World War, the Tsarist Empire collapsed and they had their revolution and uh, became the Soviet Union. But all of that is still very international with people from Central Asia, Turkic type people, uh, the Caucasus with all of their different languages and cultures, some Islamic, some very early Christian and so forth. And of course, they were always meddling in on the Western side of their border you know participating in the partition of Poland and uh, chipping away at Romania and and uh, of course so it's it's kind of been involved in all these different areas so it's absolutely fascinating and uh, so that's one of the things you sense with Russia that the scale is just is just huge and uh, now even now if I listen to uh, Moscow, uh you know there are a lot of people there with with Georgian names that are no longer Georgian so even with the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Empire, uh, you're aware of these influences and now have a problem with problem or whatever. There are issues with all the different minorities within Russia, plus immigration from countries in the former uh, Soviet Union and stuff. So that that's the world. It's a very much a Eurasian world. Uh, and we have to understand that they're not just like some European country that speaks a Slavic language. All right, that's by way of background. The language. Uh, yeah, it starts out with Zdravstvujte. That's like hello. So in English, we say hello. It's pretty easy to say. Zdravstvujte. Uh, okay, there's not a lot of vowels in there. Uh, and all they're saying is hello. You know, you practice that in front of the mirror a few times, you got to clear the, you know, the expectoration off the mirror. Uh, just joking, by the way. Shutka, as they say in Russian. Uh, you know, and uh, of course, Czech has even fewer vowels. So I kind of think the Slavs, wherever they started from, somewhere in, in the, on the plains of uh, the Eurasian steppes there, they must have spent a lot of their time chewing sunflower seeds and spitting them out uh, to arrive with a language that uh, has so few vowels and so many things that you sort of say through your teeth and, and, and lips. And Just joking, by the way. So... But it's an indication that the pronunciation is not easy. And there are a few little things that are kind of deceptive, like the O, if it's not stressed in a word, becomes A. 
So Toronto is Taronta, uh, you know, because the O becomes an A. So that makes the spelling a little bit difficult. So there are some issues with pronunciation, you know, getting your tongue and lips around all these consonants uh, and getting used to how the um, writing system works. On the subject of the writing system, you know, compared to learning Chinese, it's easy. But in a way, it's not easy because it's very similar. I mean, it's a, it's a almost parallel alphabet to the Latin alphabet, which is not surprising because it comes from the Greek alphabet, and so does the Latin alphabet, which in turn comes from the Phoenician alphabet. Uh, but there are some letters that are unique to uh, Russian, the zh, and then they have two characters that both are pronounced sh. I can't tell the difference, and I don't really know, and I've never worried about it. And they have a little B-flat sign, which is supposed to soften the sounds and stuff. So there's a few little things in there that you have to get used to. Uh, but there are some, some letters that look like Latin letters, and they, in fact, they're pronounced differently. Like what looks like a P is actually an R. And since it's very much hardwired in our minds that that's a P, it takes a while to get over that. It takes a while, but it eventually happens. So the only um, advice on the alphabet is to get started on it. You're going to be able to start reading with difficulty within a few hours. And then the more you read, the better you get at it. However, as I found when I went to Czech, uh, it's always easier to read in your own alphabet. Always. So that is always going to be a bit of a a thing that makes Russian just that little bit more difficult. The other thing that's difficult in Russian, uh, I, I'm not going to go through all the different, you know, how the language works. Obviously, word order is an issue. Uh, word order in Russian is very flexible uh, and very different in some ways. You know, you can say, um, you know, uh, what could be, okay, this is, this is a book in English. The Russians don't worry about articles. Это книга. This book. Это книга. Uh, to ask, you know, uh, if, you, if you say, I read a book, the book, a book, я читаю книгу, книгу. But you can also say, я книгу читаю, so that the word order can kind of be shifted around. And that's possible because, oh, and I should add to a lot of their questions, you only can tell it's a question by the intonation. If you say, uh, uvas jest, means you have, means to you is, uvas jest kniga, you have a book. Uvas jest kniga, question. Uh, they don't want to get into the French, qu'est-ce que c'est, or okay in Portuguese. It's just uvas jest, you have, uh, which is kind of easy. But uh, they can shift the words around in the order because of the case system. And now I'm going to spend a little time on the three big bugbears in Russian, the three major problems that you have to overcome. The cases, the second one is verbs of motion, and the third one is the aspect of verbs. Everything else kind of you can get used to, but those three I'm still struggling with. So this video I can see is going to be a little bit longer than the others, but nevertheless, uh, I hope it's worthwhile. Cases, some people don't know what cases are. I had Latin at school, we had to decline, you know, bellum as fast as possible. Blum, 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 Those are the singular and plural six cases of the Latin noun bellum, meaning war, bellum, or however it's pronounced. In Russian, there are six cases, not the same. 
Latin has the vocative, which the Russians don't have, although the Czechs do. The cases, the concept is quite straightforward. In other words, if a noun is the subject of a sentence, I go, the book is on the table, then it's in the nominative. If you do something to the book, I give the book to you, I give the book, now the book is in the accusative because you've done something to it. If I give the book to you, I begin giving it to you, dative, to donation, give, that's the dative. Then they have a thing called the prepositional case, which is basically where something is, on the, at the, in the, sort of like a location, location type case. In that case, the noun will have a different ending. And then they have, what have I forgot, the genitive, which means to belong to something. So of the book, of the book would be in the genitive. And they have a thing called the instrumental, by the book, you know, um, by my pen or uh, anything that implies what instrument, what was the agent that you used to do something. In that case, I went by car, then the car will be in the instrumental. So those are the cases, there are six cases. The endings, for example, ooh might be the accusative for the feminine, it might be the dative for the masculine and neuter. So the endings kind of shift around, which doesn't help. Uh, and of course you have masculine, neuter, and feminine. So you got all kinds of different endings that you have to learn. That starts to become a problem. The problem with the cases is that, that in, as a general overview, the concept is not difficult. But the specific you know, explanations of why we use one case or another are extremely confusing. And if I were to read you from this book here, uh, picked out, you know, in, for every case, there are like a variety, you know, uh, here's, okay, the genitive case is used after words expressing, expressing measure and quantity. That's fine. But if it's one of something, it's the nominative singular. If it's two, three, or four of something, it's the genitive singular. If it's five or more, it's the genitive plural. Now, if that was the only rule you had to learn, you could probably deal with it. But uh, there's lots more, you know. The genitive case is used in a partitive sense to express an indefinite, incomplete, an indefinite, incomplete quantity. Okay, good for you. And you go on, you go on, you know, if you go on to the, uh, the uh, accusative, you know, it's, the genitive case is normally used after negated verbs in the following instances, when the negation is intensified by another word when a partitive sentence is negated. All this stuff, I mean, of course, I don't know what that means, but I have to look at the examples. Uh, you know, some, what are we, you know, the dative is used to express the logical side, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just goes on and on, A, B, C, D, F, G, uh, whatever, H, well, and, you know, like, the vast majority of prepositions don't take the prepositional case, they take the genitive case. And the same preposition will sometimes take the genitive and sometimes takes the, take the accusative. Uh, and so it just, it's extremely difficult. And the endings, the tables, I've looked at those tables so many times. And you can kind of half remember it for a day or two, and then it's gone. And even if you understand the explanations, after lots of examples, and I should say that, that this grammar book with all of its explanations, I always use as an example of how horrible grammar explanations can be 
I have another book that I bought in Moscow, which just has examples. And if with enough examples, you can start to see it. However, what I found is ultimately you just have to read and listen so often that certain phrases start to sound natural with their endings. Uh, it was much like learning tones in Chinese, trying to remember the individual tone for each character was very difficult, but with enough practice, you eventually get better and better. Okay. And I'll just digress a bit. I am a big proponent of lots of listening and reading, but to get good, eventually you have to do a lot of speaking. I have done a lot of speaking in Japanese, in French, even in Chinese, because I used to go to China, you know, a month, a year when I was in Hong Kong, uh, attending the Hong Kong or the Canton trade fair, speaking Chinese all the time. I've spoken a lot of Chinese. I haven't spoken a lot of Russian. So I speak still with a lot of hesitation and, and mistakes. Eventually you got to speak a lot, but you have to also continue listening and reading. So cases, that's number one. You're always, in my view, going to have trouble with the cases. Perhaps someone who attends a class who's studying it formally, maybe does better than I did. I was spending an hour a day, most of it in my car while exercising, listening. Uh, it was, you know, it's, it's an interest thing. It's not, I'm not passing a test. However, I must say that, uh, given that I spent five years at it, an hour a day, uh, a lot of people, um, study it very seriously in class and they don't get as far along as I did. And besides which I can understand so much. And this is another thing when you don't understand or you don't know the cases, it doesn't prevent you from understanding. If you have the words, some things remain a little bit fuzzy but it's sufficiently redundant. The whole context is that you can still understand, learn words on link where I learned all my words and enjoy the language, learn about the country, the culture. Uh, and, and even though you haven't really nailed down the grammar and, and what I tended to do was I had listened to simple stuff to begin with. And then I went to more difficult stuff. Someone asked me on one of my YouTube videos, uh, is it worthwhile listening to stuff you don't understand? No, get stuff where you can access the text. If you can access the text, the transcript, bring it into link as I did, save the words and phrases, and that way you will eventually be able to understand more and more of it. Anyway, that was cases. The second issue is verbs of motion. In Russian, there is one, the word to go in English. I go, I go tomorrow, I always go, not in Russian. Aside from the fact that the verbs have tenses and change for tense and change for person. Okay. That's a minor problem. Bigger problem is <clears throat> if you go, what they call multi-directional, if you kind of go all the time or go and come back, that's one verb. But if you are going there, that's another verb. Uh, and if you go, uh, on a means of transportation, that's another verb. And that also has its multi-directional and unidirectional form. And that's just for go. And then there's carry and come and fly and swim. Very difficult to get a handle on and to actually be able to reproduce. It doesn't prevent you from understanding the language, but it is very difficult to nail it down when you're speaking. And then we have the aspect of verbs and I should get, I have read these definitions so many times. It's if the action is completed or was supposed to be completed or might've been completed or was never going to be completed, then you use one form. But if in fact it was completed or might've been completed and except for the other exceptions, then you use this other form. I don't understand it. I've read them so many times and here again, it's just exposure. And eventually, cause you can't be trying to go through all these logical explanations while you're speaking. So you, to my mind, you have to expose yourself to a lot of the language 
and then eventually start speaking a lot, okay? I could get into other issues that are different, but they're minor, like, you know, the word for, like, in, in where, okay? Gdje, where, but in Russian is also, uh, you know, from where to where, are actually different words. That, those are minor issues. The big problems in Russian are those three bugbears, cases, verbs of motion, and aspects of verbs. Now, the good news. Russian is fascinating. It's a beautiful language. The country is fascinating. The culture and history is fascinating. The people who appear kind of somewhat stoic, in fact, are very warm and uh, they tend to speak their minds and say what they think and uh, don't worry too much about the details. But that's what makes them so uh, fun to be around. And I would say, too, that there is this uh, in Russia, you know, there's no compromise. And, and I think that's how they approach uh, even artistic creation or, or sports. And that's why we see a lot of artistic creation in Russia, outstanding ballerinas, outstanding musicians or whatever scientists. And even in sport, uh, you know, the, the, certainly in hockey, I find the Russians are just magicians. They're artists. Uh, and so they have a tendency to uh, really commit themselves in one direction. They're not, uh, they're not fence sitters. So... With that, I'm sorry that I ran for so long. I could speak forever on the subject. It's been a big part of my life the last uh, five years, although the last seven, but the last two I was on more on Czech and Romanian and Portuguese and whatnot. Uh, it's been a big part of the last, uh, you know, since uh, my 60th birthday and will continue to be so. And I very much encourage you to learn Russian despite the difficulties. Thank you for listening.